All right, well, our text today is Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. The church in these early chapters of Acts seems almost utopian, doesn't it? The pictures we're given describe the early church as a sort of super community. They are sharing life. They are spending lots of time together. They are breaking bread, often in one another's homes. They are forging real partnership in this new life of the Holy Spirit. What it means to belong to Jesus who was killed and has been raised and is now exalted to God's right hand? What does it mean to be his people? They are meeting one another's needs with care and generosity. And they're getting some quality time with the apostles, sitting at their feet, listening to them teach, as Jesus had both equipped them to do and commissioned them to do. And on top of all that, there are signs and wonders. Ship among the Jewish religion is bent on keeping its power and its influence and its prestige with the people, and they are bent on snuffing out this troublesome Jesus movement. And so there is a price to pay, and the apostles have been arrested. Peter and John have been arrested twice. And this last time, they returned from their trial torn and bleeding from a flogging. But they don't give up. The invincibility of the gospel empowers a fortitude in the face of persecution. And they keep on teaching and preaching Jesus. And the church keeps on growing. But this new spirit-filled community of faith is not without its difficulties. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we meet a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who claim to sell a piece of land and contribute all of the profits from that sale to the, the common fund for those in need when really they have kept back a part for themselves the problem is not that they only gave part. The problem is that they lie. They lie to Peter and the apostles. And Peter says, you have not lied to man. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes their lives on the spot. This produces no small amount of fear among those in the church, Christians, as well as those outside of the church who hear about the event. So there's this deep reverence and fear in the church and those outside the church about what's going on in this community of faith. And now in chapter 6, verse 1, we see another challenge for the church. Even in these salad days, not everyone was getting along. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As strange as it sounds, this should be encouraging to us. Anyone who thinks that we experience conflict in the church because we have somehow lost our vision or connection with the New Testament church is not reading their New Testament very carefully. God's churches are always resolving conflict. Sometimes they resolve it poorly, and sometimes they resolve it well. But any church that says, we don't experience conflict is blind or hiding something. That conflict may be on a small scale. It may involve two individuals who can't agree on where the pot should be placed in the church kitchen. It may be large scale involving groups of people or leadership teams, whether those are elders or deacons or pastoral staffs. It might be over something petty, like the volume of the music in the worship service, though, of course, Those things are not petty to those in conflict over them, or they wouldn't be in conflict. But I say petty in comparison to something really significant like a philosophy of ministry or a doctrinal conviction. But whatever the size, whatever the scale, whatever the shape of the conflict, conflict is real, and until Jesus finishes establishing the kingdom we will have to respond to it. I say all this because people in the church seem to get disillusioned when there's conflict. And I know some conflict is very hard. Some of it can be devastating. But there can be this disillusionment. I thought this was the church. This is where everyone's supposed to love each other, like back in Acts chapter two. And they forget about Acts chapter six where everyone's supposed to love each other. This isn't what the church is supposed to be like. And then there are those who are outside the church who seem to enjoy saying hypocrites. See, they're not better than anybody else. Well, it's true, isn't it? To some degree, it's valid. However, the church is the place where God is making people new. The church is made up of those who are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, where love through the cross and by the power of the Holy Spirit is in the process of conquering self and the flesh. And the church is the only place that is happening that is not happening anywhere else. 
not in any conflict resolution seminar, not in courtrooms. The church is the only place where that kind of transformation is happening. It is the only community marked by that awesome transformative work of God. We shouldn't be disillusioned. And it is only hypocrisy if conflict is hidden or treated like it's not there. It's only hypocritical of us if we put up a facade that says, come to church, we have no conflict. Now, in the events of Acts chapter 6, there arises a conflict between two cultural groups within the church, verse 1. The Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now, both of these groups are actually Jewish, even though one is called Hebrews and one the Hellenists. All of the believers, to our knowledge, at this time in the church are Jewish. The gospel has not been yet proclaimed to Gentiles. When it is, it is an event in the book of Acts, chapter 10. Many Jews lived in Jerusalem and Palestine and retained their Jewish heritage and culture. Where they worshipped. The temple was central for them. They knew and spoke Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek by necessity. A good example of Hebraic Jews were the apostles. They all knew Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. They were tradesmen. The temple was the center of their worship in Jerusalem. In other words, they were very Jewish, culturally speaking. These are the Hebrews in verse 1, or the Hebraic Jews. But there were also many Jews who lived outside of the region of Palestine, and especially outside of Judah and Jerusalem, who had adapted to the culture around them. A Greek culture, that's what the term Hellenist means. They had not abandoned their Jewish faith, but because of location and other factors, they had adapted their practices of Judaism, where they worshipped, how they worshipped. It may have influenced how they dressed. A Hellenist Jew would have spoken primarily Greek and may not have even known Hebrew or Aramaic. Many of these Hellenist Jews are the ones referred to back in chapter 2 of Acts uh, who have come from different regions and have different native languages but are there in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. So we have these two groups of Jewish believers with the same faith, the same scriptures, the same messianic hopes, but very different cultural backgrounds. And now these two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, have all received the Holy Spirit. And they are all been filled with the Holy Spirit. And they have come together as one community of faith and generosity. And both groups have widows among them. Widows who benefit from a daily distribution. You can see that here in verse 1. This is probably a distribution of food which is part of the radical generosity that we see going on in this first church. 
Rapid growth has made this a massive undertaking. I think we can deduce that from the problem that arises here. We're talking thousands of people. If we just add up the numbers that are given in these early chapters of Acts, we're talking eight to 10,000 people that are part of the church. Try taking that and organizing a widow's ministry, a daily distribution of food. It's a massive undertaking. And the Hellenists make a complaint that their widows are being neglected. Now, there's no sign of this division between these two groups before this. I think we can say that in Christ, they were coming together. They were loving each other. They were sharing with one another. They were partnering with one another. They were breaking bread together. But at this point, there arises a problem that at least on the surface appears to be a division culturally. That the reason the Hellenists' widows are being neglected is somehow tied to the fact that the Hebrew or the Hebraic Jews are maybe in charge of distributing the food. It doesn't give us details. It may have been a language problem. It may have been something as simple as the equivalent of an email goes out, but it's all in Aramaic, explaining where to come and where to show up on Tuesday for the widows to receive their food distribution. But if it's in Aramaic, none of the Hellenist Jews can read the memo. And they don't know, and they don't get food for the day. This is the problem. It's not happening, and they bring their complaint. Now, we're not told if the Hebrews are showing some sort of partiality deliberately or if it's inadvertent. We're not told if the Hellenists are being hypersensitive and overreacting or if they are patiently presenting their concerns. The apostles' response would seem to indicate that they recognize some sort of validity to the, to the problem, to the complaint, but the details of the conflict itself are not the focus of the story. And I hate to tell you, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, do not give us a template for resolving conflict. I wish they did, but they don't. That's not the purpose, is to give us a template, a three-step process to resolving conflict. Luke's purpose and giving this story and putting it here in the book of Acts is to show how the progress of the gospel is jeopardized by the conflict. That if this conflict is not resolved, this growth of the gospel is threatened. Like persecution from outside the church... And like the hypocrisy in the midst, the corruption that can happen, Ananias and Sapphira, this conflict presents another obstacle to the growth of the gospel and the fulfillment of Jesus' promise back in chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I say this because of the context. Notice back in chapter 5, verse 42. This is after the, the apostles, the 12, have been flogged for refusing to not teach Jesus 
and having gone into the council, been on trial, and condemned the Jewish leadership once again, confronted them with their sin. Verse 42 of chapter 5, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They kept going. We must obey God rather than men. And because of this, chapter 6, verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. It continues to grow. This is reemphasized at the end of this story in verse 7, isn't it? The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And tucked there in these verses in between, like a sandwich, we find preaching the word of God, verse 2. The ministry of the word, verse 4. The word of God continued to increase, verse 7. The word, the word, the word, the word. This is the word of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. At its heart, it would have been Jesus was sent from God, by God, was killed, was raised to life, was exalted to God's right hand. He is God's king. He was promised in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the scriptures. And all of the implications for life, what it means now that the kingdom has come and the last days have, been, have begun what it means to belong to him, to experience and know this blessing and how God is reconciling, himself, uh, reconciling his people to himself and providing forgiveness. This is the message of the gospel. This is the word that is increasing, the word they are preaching. So let's look at how the church resolves this conflict then, how it neutralizes the threat to the gospel mission. But even more than that, actually advances the gospel. This is how church conflict advances the gospel. First of all, I want you to see the distraction. The distraction, verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the 12, the complaint, reaches the 12 apostles and we're not told what kind of discussion they have among themselves. Did they reach immediate agreement as to how to handle this? Or did Andrew and Philip get in a bit of an argument over whether or not they should take this step or this step? We don't know. We're not told any of that. But by the time they have discussed it and come together, they are in unison on a decision. And how could they have responded? They could have ignored it. They could have said, you know what? If we just let this go, it'll go away. It'll resolve itself. Someone will figure out what to do. And it would have been disastrous. They could have, on the other hand, done it themselves. They could have said, you know what? We're the apostles. We're the apostolic team here. And this is on our plate, guys. This is our responsibility. I could have rolled up their sleeves, tweaked their schedules, cut out a little of their teaching time, and given themselves to organizing the distribution of food. But the gospel would have suffered. 
the church would have suffered. And so they say it is not right. The word right means fitting or appropriate. It's not fitting or appropriate for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And this phrase, serve tables, could refer to the handling of finances where tables would have been set up with coin exchanges and distribution of monies. Something similar to when you read about the tables set up in the temple courts, the money changers, and Jesus comes in and, and holy anger flips their tables over. So, they, so this phrase, serve tables, could be talking about that, or it could simply mean like we would think of serving tables, waiting tables, bringing food, actually distributing the food. Could have involved both, but in any case, it has to do with this it has to do with an organizational issue of distributing the food. It's not that the serving tables was not important. It was. Widows matter to God. Their vulnerability makes them the objects of God's special care and the special care of God's people. Both the preaching and the distribution of food were important. But the apostles, had, they had a, an assignment, a ministry. And it wasn't right or fitting to displace that ministry with another ministry, even as important as it was. The 12 are declaring their priorities. They are protecting their priorities to preach the gospel. And we will see here in verse 4, to pray. A ministry of prayer by the apostles for the church, meaning that the apostles were praying for and with people and their needs and their growth and their dealing with sin and their forgiveness and reconciliation. But it is also a public leading of the disciples in designated times of prayer. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 1, when Peter and John are headed up to the temple, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Why? Because they're apostles. And there's something about them going to the temple that is leading the church in times of prayer. So that's the ministry of prayer. And this is the true danger of the conflict. It will distract the apostles from their primary responsibility and calling to preach the word and pray. And everybody, anybody, well, first of all, all of us in life face those kinds of tensions, don't we? We know what it means to have to prioritize life. Work, this is my job. I have a responsibility, but this is my family. We know those tensions. Anybody in full-time ministry knows these tensions even more specifically. I feel them in my own life. I love people and I love to be with people. But on a week where I'm preaching, as the week goes on, you will find my door closed because I have a responsibility and I know that I'd probably rather be doing some other things at that time, but that's part of the discipline. It's time. I've got to be down in the Word, and I've got to be preparing. That's why sometimes when you guys, you know, we want to get together, it's Thursday, Friday, I can't do that. I can't do Thursday or Friday, because by that time in the week, I'm increasingly focused. Listen, we all know those tensions. 
And the 12 are saying this is a priority. And this is the danger. It is a distraction. Because if they are not faithful in their calling, the growth of the gospel will cease. It will get tripped up. So first we see the distraction. Secondly, we see the solution. We see the solution. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, this is what we're going to do, everybody. Pick out from among you seven men. So the disciples, the believers, the church now have a responsibility. The apostles call on them to participate in resolving this problem. And they're not to call for volunteers. They're to select, pick out seven men. And there are two qualifications. The first is, each of them must be of good repute. Meaning that the men who come to mind for this task should be men of whom there's nothing questionable about their character or their maturity. And I think it means that these are men who already are known and recognized by and large in the community as leaders. Showing sacrifice, spending time with people, proactively pursuing people. They have to be of good repute. They also must be full of the spirit and wisdom. They have to be men who are exemplary of the spirits working in their lives and have demonstrated wisdom. These men need to be men who, at some public level, among the the believers, have demonstrated making sound, insightful decisions. These men must be of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. They have to be spiritual men. And then again, back to the priorities. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, three things strike me about this. First, it's organizational. It's organizational. The apostles' response to this conflict is an organizational one. If some widows are being overlooked, we are responsible for making sure that doesn't happen. And on the first thing, the primary thing that Luke talks about and reveals here is an organizational change. We have to do things differently. It isn't just, hey, you guys need to get along. You guys, we're all Christians here. You're just supposed to love each other. I say, no, we need to do things differently. It reminds me of Numbers chapter 11. For those of you who may have grown up in Sunday school, you might remember this story. Some of you will be familiar with it. Moses is in the wilderness with leading the people of Israel. The people are griping and complaining, and that seems to be the cycle in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The people are complaining. They don't want to be here. Things are not good enough. They've been led out into the wilderness And Moses is always in this tension between loving the people and loving Yahweh, who has called him, burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, 
and serving him and the reality that these people are complaining all the time. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 10, Moses is at one of these points. I remember years ago hearing Chuck Swindoll, some of you remember Chuck Swindoll, preached on this passage, and he entitled his sermon, The Lonely Wine of the Top Dog. <laughs> That's what Moses is doing here. Moses, uh, the Numbers chapter 11, verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping through their throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Why did you give me this people to shepherd? Why did you give me this people to lead through the desert? Did I conceive all this people? Are they my children? Did I give them birth that you should say to me? This is your job, Moses. Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Oof, Moses is low. I know what he feels like. We don't ever want to get to that place, do we? Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Go find men who are elders and leaders among their clans. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Moses is able to do what he's able to do because God's spirit is on him. A spirit of wisdom, of leadership, of compassion, of insight. But the administration of it is too much for Moses. And God says, call these 70 men down. I'm going to take some of that spirit and I'm going to dole it out so that they can help you bear the burden of leading this people, of making this happen. It's very similar. It makes me wonder if the apostles, when they first heard of this complaint between the Hellenists and the Hebraic Jews, opened up their scriptures to Numbers chapter 11 and said, remember this? This is what we should do. So the first thing that strikes me is it's organizational. The second thing that strikes me, on the other hand, is why would the church need men full of the spirit and wisdom to do something merely mundane and administrative? Because there are people involved. I think that's the answer. There are people involved. And unraveling this conflict requires spiritual people with wisdom so that the organizational solution is applied with integrity and grace and patience and understanding. 
as well as with skill. You could get someone very administratively wired, gifted, to do this job, to make sure that everybody gets the food and that it's communicated in Greek so that everybody can understand the memos and so on and so forth. But that might not help heal whatever wounds have happened and offenses have taken place. Need spiritual people, spiritual men to do that. So on the one hand, it's organizational, but on the other, this thing needs men full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Thirdly, I'm struck by the fact that for the first time, spiritual authority in the church and responsibility is delegated to leaders outside of the 12 apostles. And I really think this is what Luke is getting at. This is why he records this story, because it is vital for the growth of the gospel and for the people of God, the church. I don't even know if the apostles had such a long-range vision for their decision. Maybe they did. But the reality is that this decision to delegate this ministry to these seven men is a milestone in the growth and the life of the church. And we're going to see, we'll talk about in a couple minutes, what happens as a result of that. So this is the solution then. Select seven men from among you. Thirdly, we see the cooperation. We see the distraction. We've seen the solution. Now we see the cooperation. Because the... The disciples liked this idea, verse 5, and they, uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, proselyte from Antioch. Most of those are Greek names. Some believe that these men were selected and that their Greek names indicate that these were probably Hellenist Jews. These men happen to be of the Hellenist. Could be. If that's the case, then you can see that the people within the church in a fair-minded way said, well, if this is the problem, let's select some men who fit these qualifications out of the Hellenist group to gain their trust, to give them this level of leadership, and we trust them. Could be. So the disciples select them. They, the apostles confirm them and commission them after the church has selected them. And I wonder what that nominating process was like. Out of 8,000 to 10,000 people, seven men out of that many. And of the seven men they choose, the first two in the list go on to become important leaders in the church. Stephen... And Philip. And you notice the description of Stephen. They chose Stephen. He's at the head of the list. Just like Peter is always at the head of the list of the apostles. Always listed first. Stephen, a man full of... This glowing report of Stephen is added. Now, we know the other men have to meet the qualifications. They have to be of good repute and full of the spirit and of wisdom also. Or they wouldn't have qualified. But Stephen is highlighted here. 
And of these two men, Stephen and Philip go on to become important leaders in the church. Stephen will be the main character in chapter 7, and Philip will become the main character of chapter 8. And then later on in Acts, Philip will show up a couple times. Now, I need to pause right here and just make a comment, because many people believe that this passage is the record of the first deacons in the church. And we know that the deacons, or the office of deacon, becomes a formal office later on in the life of the church. In his greeting to the Philippians, Paul mentions the deacons, the elders and the deacons, in his greeting. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the office of elder is, I'm sorry, of deacon is described and all the qualifications of a deacon are given there as well. So we know that the deacon becomes an office. But is that what Luke is saying here? Now, I I grew up Southern Baptist. I've said that a few times. But if you're visiting, you wouldn't know that. I grew up Southern Baptist. And in the Southern Baptist church, you don't have elders. I grew up thinking elders belong to cults. If you were an elder, if someone was an elder, they were Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or something. We had deacons. We had a senior pastor, and we had deacons. And the deacons ran the church. And then there was a board of trustees. I never see them in the New Testament, but we had them. I had a professor in seminary who used to say, you know what the difference between a trustee and a deacon is? A trustee can smoke. Okay. If you were a deacon, you weren't allowed to smoke. But if you were a trustee, that was different. And they had the, you know... A lot of times the deacons in the Southern Baptist Church where I grew up functioned like elders. They were spiritual leaders for the most part. The trustees, they just took care of the building and they could smoke. But the deacons, okay, they were spiritual leaders. And if you hear a Southern Baptist preach on Acts chapter, I don't want to make a blanket statement. I can't speak for every Southern Baptist. But if they preach this passage, this is the formation of the deacons, This is where it started. I tend to think that's not what Luke is doing here. I don't think he's recording the beginning of the office of deacon. Part of the reason I say that is because Luke makes no explicit connection. Now, he uses the word servant, and that is what deacon means. That comes from the Greek word for servant. But he makes no connection. And I think if he wanted to, this would be the golden opportunity to make a connection between what the apostles put into place here and the office of deacon later on in the New Testament church. But he doesn't. They are given a task, but they're not given a title or an office other than the seven. They're referred to as the seven. Most telling is what they go on to do after this chapter, especially Stephen and Philip. It is clear that these two men are evangelists, not deacons. They are evangelists. Evangelists are also mentioned later in the New Testament. You can see uh, Ephesians chapter 4 or 2 Timothy chapter 3 there. In 2 uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word in and season and out of season. But do the work of an evangelist. Preach the gospel, center on the gospel. So these two men, especially 
Stephen and Philip are evangelists. Okay, so this is, this is not the, the foundation for the, the deacons, the office of deacon as we know it. I don't know, maybe, maybe when that office was formed, they look back at this or something, but it's not clear here. No, this is, these guys are the next wave of gospel leaders carrying on the gospel mission. That's what's happening. They are evangelists, at least Stephen and Philip are, who go on for, to further the work of the gospel. They preach and they teach. So, but this is the cooperation of the church. The apostles, to avoid distraction, maintain their priorities. They present a solution. The church body embraces it and they cooperate. And they now have selected these seven men. And lastly, I want you to see the multiplication. The multiplication. Now, I think there are two ways that the word of God multiplies here. Look at verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's almost hyperbole. If back in verse one we say, uh, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, and now by the end of it we're saying the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, we're seeing now even greater strength, greater power, greater growth of the gospel in the church. And Notice this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I don't know if this reality is tied to what has taken place in these verses now, the fact that they have uh, delegated this responsibility and leadership to these seven men, that somehow that affected the thinking or the receptivity of the priests. And remember, the Sadducees, who are the controlling party in the Jewish council that has just beat the apostles and who oversee the temple grounds and oversee the priestly clans who minister to the people and, and basically govern the religion and the religious practice there at the temple, the priests, a great many number of the priests become obedient to the faith. There are priests they are converting out of Sadduceeism. They are converting to Jesus out of Judaism. That's an astounding thought to think that that's taking place. That the priests even, many of the priests are witnessing it and seeing this and going, this is it. I know the scriptures. I'm trained in the scriptures as well as all of the Levitical trappings. But this is it. Jesus is the one. There is this multiplication. And first of all, I think it's tied to the apostles' priorities of prayer and preaching that they've preserved. It's because they have done this. This is the clear connection. Because they have done this, the growth of the gospel has continued and even heightened, even become greater the growth of the church has become even greater because they preserved their priorities and they stuck with 
the ministry of prayer and preaching the word. But I also think that it is the passing on of this ministry and authority in the church to other spiritual leaders. I'll tell you why. It's not just the connection with verse 7. It's what comes after this. As I said, these two men at the top of the list for the seven, Stephen and Philip, they become the primary characters in the next couple of chapters. And you know what happens in chapter 7? It starts in chapter 6, but the real events in chapter 7. Stephen, this one at the top of the list, is arrested and put on trial. And he delivers a glorious, scathing gospel message. And they stone him for it. And Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. Becomes the first one who dies. But the result of his death by stoning is that a persecution breaks out. It's almost like because Stephen's life is taken, that just makes everybody bloodthirsty. And now the gates are open and they begin to persecute the church. They begin to hunt down, arrest, imprison, and kill other Christians. And the result of that, the Christians disperse. They leave Jerusalem. We'll talk more about it when we get there, okay? But they leave, and what happens? Where's the gospel go? With them. The gospel goes with them, and it spreads. And the next thing you know is you have churches in Antioch and Damascus and all of these towns and cities outside of Palestine because these believers take the gospel with them. Chapter 8, Philip. Philip becomes the church's first missionary, if you will in that Philip goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel. And the Samarians are converted. And it's like Pentecost all over again. The Spirit descends. There are tongues spoken. There's prophecy given. Why? Because the gospel has just kicked down one of the biggest barriers between outside of Israel, between Israel and Samaria, and back to chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Philip ends up going there because of the persecution, because of what happens to Stephen. That doesn't happen if these men do not receive this This responsibility, these leaders, these evangelists. So you can see that it is not only the preservation of these priorities of prayer and preaching the word, that by putting, elevating and delegating these responsibilities and authority to Stephen and Philip in particular, the gospel goes forth. It's about to explode out of Jerusalem. If they think that they are about to snuff it out, just the opposite is about to take place. 
And you can see, we will see, that once again, verse 7, here we go. Once again, the invincible gospel grows out of the crucible of crisis. It's a conflict arose. Is it going to stop the gospel? Nope. Even in their handling it and, and struggling, we don't know what, we've got to do this. This is a step we're going to take. I don't think, I, I'm going to say, even the apostles did not understand the long-reaching implications of that decision that they made. And yet, what's going to happen in the next couple of chapters is going to show that God was in it, that God was using them in this, this particular crisis, this conflict between two cultural groups in the church, God was using it to move his invincible gospel outward. 